Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. If you have your Bibles, please open up with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Listen now to God's holy word. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thus says the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do thank you that you have made yourself known to us in your word. And we thank you that you have made your will known to us in your word that we may live for you, and know you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us tonight to teach us more about you and how we are to live in these last days. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be amongst us to sanctify us, helping us to live holy lives until you come again. And we ask that in all things that you would be glorified and honored. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I hope 
It's not new news, or it's not coming as new news to any of you, but it seems, it seems that we live in a culture that is growing increasingly antagonistic and hostile to the Christian faith. And the reason for this is because the Christian faith and our beliefs are being looked at more and more as bigoted and hurtful and hateful. And so it shouldn't be that surprising to any of us when we read things like Ligonier's uh, survey called the State of Theology, which they conducted two years ago. In that survey, it was revealed that 30% of confessing evangelical Christians do not hold to the deity of Christ. 30% of evangelical Christians do not believe that Christ is God. And another 46% of evangelical Christians believe and affirm that people are good by nature. And so it's interesting that more and more people are abandoning the Christian faith and orthodox beliefs in light of this increasingly hostile culture that we're living in. It's also interesting to see many Christian leaders wandering away from the faith, such as Josh Harris and Paul Maxwell, of whom much have been written about. It seems as though that in this increasingly hostile an antagonistic culture, people are caving. They are no longer willing, willing to affirm the truth of God's word and what it says. And they would rather be abandoned, they would rather abandon God in order to win the approval and the praise of men. Now, perhaps what may be surprising to you is that the situation, the, the situation that we are in today is not that different from the Apostle Peter's time. The church back then was also facing similar threats. Christians were abandoning the faith when they realized that Christ may not be coming as soon as they thought he was. And false Christians were rising up, false teachers and false prophets were rising up to entice people to abandon the faith and to get them to abandon God and the truth of his word. Which makes our passage so necessary tonight. In our passage, the Apostle Peter is reminding us to hold fast to God's word, to remember what it is we believe, and he is encouraging us and instructing us how we are to live in light of these beliefs. And so in verse 1, he begins by saying this. He says that this is now the second letter that he is writing to the churches. And in both of them, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. That's the first thing that the Apostle Peter wants us to know. He wants us to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. But he doesn't specify here in these beginning verses what those predictions are. We have to read on and read the rest of the passage in order to realize what it is that he's referring to. When we realize that this passage is first and foremost about the coming day of the Lord, the coming day of Christ's second return, 
we can easily infer that the predictions that Paul is speaking of here has to do with those same subjects, the coming day of the Lord. So Peter is referring to predictions of the holy prophets uh, from verses such as from verses such as Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9. There in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, we read, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Likewise, The prophet Ezekiel also references and prophesies about the day of the Lord. He says, Wail, alas, for the day, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Now, notice what both of these passages are saying. This coming day of the Lord will be a day of judgment. When Christ came the first time, he came in love to administer mercy. When he comes the second time, it will be a day of wrath to administer justice. And when he does, sinners will be wiped from the face of the earth. And it will be a time of doom for the nations. Now, in light of these predictions of the holy prophets, the Apostle Peter tells us to remember one other thing. He tells us to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The commandment of the Lord and Savior. And here he is vague yet again. But when we consider what the rest of this passage is talking about, it becomes clear. All throughout this passage, Peter is talking about this coming day of the Lord and how we are to be holy, to living holy and righteous lives in preparation for this coming day. So then the commandment that he is talking about has to do with uh, the commandment that our Lord and Savior gave to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus tells his followers, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then that command is repeated by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And then the Apostle Peter, in his previous letter, says the same thing. He says in Peter chapter 1, verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. And then the author of Hebrews says, Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now these are not new commands. Holiness has always been the first commandment that God has given to his people. Ever since he created Adam and Eve... He commanded faithful obedience. He commanded an Adam and Eve to walk in obedience, not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when he entered into covenant with Abraham, what did he say? He said, I am your, I am your, the Lord your God. Walk in obedience before me. 
be blameless before me. And when he made covenant with the children of Israel, he said, Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. When God enters into relationship with us, he does not do so so that we can fall back into a spirit of sinfulness. He expects and calls us to holy and righteous living. And that's exactly what the Apostle Peter here is reminding of us, reminding us tonight in this passage. He is reminding us, yes, the day of the Lord is most surely coming. It is most surely coming. And the command is, has always been the same, to live holy and righteously before the Lord our God in expectation of his coming. Now, the other thing he wants us to know is he wants us to know that in these last days, scoffers will come with scoffing. He wants us to know that we will be marginalized, that we will be ridiculed, that we will be made fun of for our faith. And I I think of my own youth group students here. Whenever you are trying to live a holy and righteous life, it will get people's attention. People will notice that you are different than they are. And it will bother them. And it will bother them so much that they are willing to hurl all kinds of insults and talk bad about you behind your back. And why is that? Well, Peter tells us, because they are following their own sinful desires. They're following their own sinful desires, meaning they are motivated by their sin. Your righteousness and your holiness makes them uncomfortable. It brings shame upon them. And the truth is, is that they would rather have you be more like them so that they wouldn't have to feel so uncomfortable. And so, yes, they will mock you. They will laugh at you. They will scoff at you for your righteous living. They will say such things, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is Jesus Christ? Hasn't it been over 2,000 years since he came? Where is his salvation and redemption? Ever since he came, our fathers are still dying. And by fathers, they are talking about the ancient Israel patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they're saying that Christ's life, death, and resurrection has made no difference for the people of God, for the people of God are still dying and vanishing as they always have. And things are continuing on as they always have been. So Peter, so Peter responds, and he tells us how they can say these things. He lets us know that, first of all, they don't say these things innocently. They don't say these things out of ignorance. They're not naive. Paul says, for they deliberately overlook this one fact. 
that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In other words, Peter is saying that they can only ask those scoffing questions because they reject Scripture's authority. They deny Scripture's authority and they look over it. Because Scripture tells us that God has been at work in the world ever since the beginning of creation. Creation itself is a testimony to the fact that God has been at work in the world. God created the world out of his word and the water, and water is what Peter says. Now that may seem like strange language, but Peter is pointing us back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, where in verses 6 6 through 9, we are told, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. The point being is that God brought all things into existence through the power of his word and then formed and shaped it out of water. And then Peter says, that's not the only way that God has intervened throughout history. God has intervened throughout history in the case of Noah. In the days of Noah, the generations of man were wicked and sinful. And so God judged man by word and water and wiped the wicked generations of mankind from off the face of the earth through the water and the word. Just as he brought in all things into creation through the water and the word, he is wiping them off the face of the earth through the water and the word. And just as he has done that, Peter tells us, he will do it again. But this time, he will destroy the heavens and the earth with the word and with fire. He says in verse 7, By the same word, the heavens and earth that are now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. Now, what's really interesting here about this passage is that Peter, in responding this way, is telling us a little bit about how we may respond to unbelievers. Notice that Peter here does not respond to the scoffers with well-reasoned logic in order to get them to believe the authority of God's word. He does not try to prove to them by the authority of his own intellect that the scriptures are true and therefore they need to believe. He simply opens up God's word and reveals what it says. And if we want to defend our faith, then we need to look to Peter's example. We need to know what the word of God says, and we need to apply it to unbelief. 
if man does not believe the word of God, then what makes us think that they would believe our word? No matter how logical or winsome we may present it. The word of God alone is the power of salvation. What are our words in comparison? So if we want to defend our faith, again, we need to follow Peter's example. We need to know what it is that the scriptures say and apply it to unbelief. And now a word about this fire stored up for heaven. There's a lot of debate about this coming judgment and what it will look like. Is this figurative language that Peter is describing? Is this metaphor? Well, I would say that the answer is no. It's not metaphor. We need to remember, again, we need to open up our Bibles and we need to know what they say and we need to know how God reveals himself. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 13, if you would. Exodus chapter 13, verse 18. Beginning in verse 17, it says this, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. When God descended on Mount Sinai, he descended in fiery flame that wrapped the whole mountain in thick darkness of smoke. And God makes appearances throughout, all of, throughout Scripture in, in the appearance of flame and fire. We see this in the case of the burning bush earlier in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. We see it again in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, where the Lord leads the people of Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night. And then in places like Leviticus 19 and Numbers 16, verse 35, the Lord judges sinner, sinners in flame. In Leviticus, he, he destroys Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire, and he destroys them with fire. And same with the rebellion of Korah when the Israelites rebelled against Moses. We are told that fire went out from the presence of the Lord and destroyed Moses' enemies. And furthermore, the prophets, such as Micah and Isaiah, both affirm that the Lord is going to come again in fire. Isaiah 66 says this, For behold, the Lord of God will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by the fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. So no, I don't think that this is figurative language. And I don't think that the Lord is going to annihilate, completely annihilate the new heavens and earth either. Because if we look at the comparison that Peter is making in our passage, he's comparing it to the days of the flood. And what happened in the flood? The wicked and the ungodly were wiped off from the face of the earth, but the earth itself remained. And only the righteous 
were left to populate the earth. And so it will be when God comes again. He will come in flames of fire to destroy the ungodly and to leave the righteous and so make a new heavens and a new earth. So this is what Peter tells us we can expect. And then in verses 8 and 9, he gives us the reason for the delay of God's timing or or the delay of God's arrival. He says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, the Lord's timing is not our timing. Peter here is borrowing what Moses says from Psalm 90. Moses says the same thing. The Lord God is everlasting to everlasting, Moses says. He exists outside of time. He created time. Time does not bind the Lord our God, and he does not view it or experience it in the same way. To God, one day is as a thousand years, and one thousand years is as one day. The Lord, make no mistake, is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, meaning that the Lord is not incompetent. My wife and I recently bought a house, and we've been painting our rooms ever since. We've had lots of interesting colors to paint over, like bright pink and a deep dark green. And when I paint a room, it's a very slow process takes me quite a while. (laughs) And that's because I'm incompetent at it. I don't have a lot of practice, to be honest. But such is not the case with the Lord. The Lord God is not slow to arrive like I'm slow in painting a room. It's not because he's incompetent or out of practice. The Apostle Peter says it's because he is kind and he is loving and he is patient not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so here we must be careful to understand what Peter means when he says that the Lord does not wish that any should reach, that not not wishing that any should perish. What does he mean by that? Does it mean that the Lord is going to save everyone? Is Peter preaching a universalism? Well, I would think that that would be an obvious no. For example, in Peter, um, earlier, that would fly in the face of everything that Peter has said up until chapter 3, verse 7, when he says that the day of the judgment will come to destroy the ungodly. And all throughout chapter 2, Peter was warning us and telling us and encouraging us that God will indeed judge sinners. No, so a universalism is not what Peter has in mind. But not wishing that any should perish, does it mean that God simply extends salvation? Does it mean that he extends salvation to us and waits for people to either receive or reject his salvation? No. That's not what it means either. And we know that because of passages like Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, 
verses uh, 15 and following, he said, Paul there says, for, for, Mo, for the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on any human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It is the Lord's prerogative who is saved and who repents. And the, the, Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Blessed be God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So then when Peter says that God does not wish that any should perish, what does he mean? Peter here is talking about God's will of disposition his attitude, and what pleases him. You could compare God to maybe a judge in our legal system. Perhaps a judge might be forced to sentence a man to jail, and yet he is grieved in doing so at the same time. And such is the case with our Lord. The Bible teaches us that God has a decretive will, a will by which everything is brought to pass, and that God has this will of disposition towards sinners. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says the same thing. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God is not pleased in the personal application of punishing the wicked. But he is pleased in maintaining his justice and holiness. For without maintaining his holiness, he cannot be God. So then, how are we to respond to God's kindness and his will of disposition towards us? Are we going to repent or will we continue to harden our hearts? The Apostle Paul asks us the same question in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We only have so much time. None of us know when the Lord is coming back. Now is the time to take advantage of his kindness and his patience and his long suffering. Now is the time to repent. For Peter says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will most surely come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Meaning that there are none of us here who can fake God out. 
There are none of us here who can fool God. There are none of us here who can hide from God. We may be able to fool one another and put on good faces. We may be able to act righteous in front of our peers, but God knows our innermost thoughts. He knows our hearts. And you are not fooling God. I am not fooling God. Everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we believe will be exposed on that great and terrible day. So since all these things will be, Peter says, if the earth is to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? I want to leave you tonight with that question ringing in your ears. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. None of us will know, none of us know when it's coming, but it is most surely coming. So how are we to be in holiness and godliness? What does it look like to live a holy and godly life? That is really the most important question that we can be asking tonight. And I want to turn your attention just just to one other place in Scripture, in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Christ says these words in verse 5. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Does that sound familiar? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this my, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That is what holiness looks like. It's an abiding and resting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And when you abide in the vine, then it is that you produce holiness and godliness. Not to earn your salvation, not to justify yourself before God, but to live a pleasing and acceptable life 
in which the Father is glorified. That is what holiness looks like. It's a trust, a deep and abiding trust in Jesus Christ. And if you cannot see the fruit of that deep and abiding trust in your life, you need to examine your heart. And the same thing goes for me. Do I see the fruit that comes from abiding and trusting in Jesus Christ? If not, I need to examine my own heart. Because if we do not bear fruit, what does Jesus say? We will be cut off and thrown into the fire. And that's exactly the message that Peter leaves us here with tonight. He's saying that a judgment is most surely coming. And it is coming in fire and in wrath. And the only thing that will endure is his holiness and righteousness. Only the holiness of God will endure. That's why Peter writes in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When God comes in the fiery flame of his wrath, he will purge this heavens and earth from all sin, idolatry, evil, and wickedness, all hate, all jealousy, all envy, all grief, all despair will be gone. And the only thing that will endure is the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And this righteousness is available for us. We only need to look to him. We only need to abide in Jesus and rest in the finished work that he has accomplished for us. And let us pray that when we do that, that finished work will produce lives of praise that give glory and honor to God. And in doing so, we will bear fruit. And we will endure that great and terrible day. Let us pray. Almighty God, O Lord and Father, we are so thankful that you sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to do what we cannot do for ourselves, to live a perfect and righteous life. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ was pleased to die for us on our behalf and exchange his righteousness with our sinfulness that we may be adopted into your heavenly, into your family. We thank you that we can come before you boldly in the name of Christ as your adopted children. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would unite us to Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would make us abide and rest in him. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would produce fruits of righteousness that would endure this life and to the next. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen your people 
Help us to stand firm in, a, in our faith in the midst of an unbelieving and hostile world. Help us to be a light and a witness for the gospel that all may come to repentance in Jesus Christ. For we know, Lord, that you are not pleased that any should perish. Help us to do that which is pleasing in your sight. And may you be glorified in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.